Hey, Chris. Good to see you, man. And I'm glad that we're uh, able to to do this a bit earlier in the week than we have been. And in fact, a bit earlier in the day than we usually get to these. I know you're... <laughs> you're uh, that has a lot to do with you having a baby. Yeah, that's true. That is mostly on me, yeah. Um, but you're um, headed out of town? Yeah, yeah, we're headed to Michigan and then to Syracuse, taking Zoe to college. Wow, it's incredible. Hard to believe, too. Well, how are you feeling? How's your back doing? It's better. It's better. Well, at least I feel better. Uh, A good friend, Josh Vicenna, helped me identify some medicines I should be taking Mm -hmm. that have at least eased the pain. So I'm moving better, and I slept last night for the first time, really, since since I did it, which is two weeks ago yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm better. I'm a lot better. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so I, on our last call this weekend with, with a few others, um, I mentioned that we'd kind of been neglecting Hebrews. We didn't get around to it again. Um, yeah. I didn't even, I don't even know that I'd realized it. And then um, a friend of ours, Father Ken Tanner, texted me and said you guys forgot hebrews and uh so since we've been neglecting it and people are or at least one person i should say is is uh noticing and i know you've been writing on hebrews and i think gonna teach or help teach a class on it soon i thought maybe we could just start there this week great yeah in fact father kenneth and i are are part of a team teaching on hebrews starting in september so i have been thinking about it quite a bit and I'll get to see him too. He'll be there in Michigan with me. Oh, so good. I'll get to see him for for an evening. But yeah, why don't why don't you read the text, which is mm-hmm. Hebrews thirteen, and mm-hmm. then we'll just start there. Okay, perfect. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison, as though you were in prison with them those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Remember your leaders those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of the lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Yeah, so I think the first thing I would want to say about the text which i mean there's a lot there's mm-hmm. a lot there but is to start with that notion of sacrifice so part of what i'm what i've been arguing for a while now is that a way of reading hebrews and i'm not trying to say it is the only way or the best or anything like that but a way of reading hebrews is to read it as a theology of worship and a reconfiguration of the not only the practice, but the theology of sacrifice around what Jesus has done. So one one way that to put it into a sentence, Jesus is not the sacrifice of God, 
to deal with sin are not a sacrifice God requires to deal with sin. Jesus is the gift that deals with sacrifice, which could not do anything more than keep us aware of sin and its consequences. The, the Hebrews then is presenting us with two kinds of sacrifice, essentially. There's the sacrifice of Cain and the sacrifice of Abel. So the sacrifice of Cain, we might say, is the sacrifice that's offered faithlessly. It's a sacrifice that is offered in the attempt to coerce God. Abel's sacrifice is offered in faith, but all it can do is keep us conscious of sin. And in this way, Abel's sacrifice belongs to what the book of Hebrews will call the, the lineage of Aaron, the priesthood of Aaron. Christ is not a priest in the Aaronic tradition, right? Christ belongs to, to the lineage of Melchizedek. He is in, in a different line of priests. And it's because he offers a non-sacrificial sacrifice, an anti-sacrifice. He offers gift that accomplishes what sacrifice could never do. So sacrifice then, a faithful sacrifice, able sacrifice, Aaron's sacrifice keeps us aware of sin. That's its purpose. The, the Canaanitic sacrifice, the sacrifice of Cain, is an attempt to work around sin, to, to coerce God. It's idolatrous. Jesus' gift deals both with Cain and Abel and with both of their sacrifices. It reconciles Cain and Abel, accomplishing what Cain's sacrifice could never accomplish, but also accomplishing what Abel's sacrifice could never accomplish. So if we bring that, that kind of understanding here, well, via the text last week, where we talked about, well, we didn't discuss it here, but the, the text mentioned that the church is the church of the firstborn. Now, of course, Cain is the firstborn in, in terms of biblical tradition. Cain is the firstborn. But theologically, Jesus is the firstborn. And Hebrews makes that point multiple times, that Jesus is the firstborn. And it's arguing then that in him there's an entire new humanity. And this, of course, is drawn from Paul's theology, that Jesus is the beginning as well as the end, not only of our faith, but of our being, and is the beginning and end of our faith because he's the end and beginning of our, of our being, and that he, not Cain, is the firstborn, and the church is gathered around him, offering a different kind of sacrifice, not only from Cain's, but also from Abel's, also from Aaron's. And that sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips. And notice it's the fruit of lips. That's Cain's sacrifice. Not the blood of our lips, but the fruit of our lips. But of course, we're offering the fruit of our lips, having received the blood of Christ, the, the Eucharist that's being named here. So what's happened in Jesus is that Cain's and Abel's sacrifices have been integrated and lifted in translated into a new language so to speak and that's the language of this new humanity and out of that flows mutual love rather than rivalry between Cain and Abel you have mutual love and instead of 
of violence between brothers, you have hospitality even to strangers. I mean, do you see kind of the way that 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 plays out? Yeah. Let me let you, let me let you respond to see whether or not I'm making sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I guess I guess what I'm thinking going back just a little bit is the thinking about sacrifice as a way to coerce God feels very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me, right. There was all kinds of, e even in the way this translated to like, I'm going to make sacrifices to make a deal with God to get God to do right. Yes. What I want or, yeah. or what I feel like I need, but mm -hmm. then at its best. And I remember this in a, I don't know, a course, with you years ago, but real, this kind of recognition that the most of the kind of sacrifices that we, we offer can do, uh, at least as Hebrews is reading this is to just remind us of our sin. Right. And so to your point, and if this is not where you want me to go with this, I mean, tell me, but what Jesus does is one, it's neither coercion, of course. Right. It's not a try to, it's not a, it's not working around in some kind of um, mm. false way, but uh, it also actually deals with sin. It is the only thing that, that deals with it. It doesn't just serve as a reminder, but doesn't do anything. It, it takes care of it, but also lays, I don't know what the best way to say this is, but lays bare the whole sacrificial system, like shows Yes, but we have to be careful right there because I okay. think we need to say two things. One is that there, there are different kinds of sacrifices already, and some of those sacrifices are faithful and some are not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah. No sacrifice can do what Jesus does. Okay, right, right. So right. there is a kind of when you say lay bare, yes, but not in the sense that Israel's sacrifices failed or they that it's faithless. Failed. Or right. that it was faithless. Israel's right, right, right. sacrifices were faithful, mm -hmm. and they did not fail. Their purpose was to to bring us year to year, moment to moment, into the awareness of sin and the hope of the coming of God. And so they they fulfilled their purpose. And this, what we do not want, is to read Hebrews as some kind of Christian refutation of Jewish tradition. Certainly, right. This is not a it's not only not anti-Semitic, it's not anti-Jewish or anti-Judaistic. Mm -hmm. It's not arguing against Israel's faith or Israel's religion. It's insisting that all of that was there mm -hmm. by the will of God, and yet has been brought to a surprising culmination in Jesus, in that Aaron's priesthood was fulfilled, not because Jesus was the last in the line of Aaron, but right. because Jesus fulfilled what had begun in Melchizedek, that Aaron's priesthood could only, as it was purposed to do, keep us uh, open to that, keep us aware of and desirous of mm -hmm. the, the gift. That, and of course, remember, what Melchizedek does is he brings bread and wine and blesses Abraham. Mm -hmm. like, so what, what we have with Melchizedek, what we have with Jesus, what we have with the church of the firstborn is a church in which we offer Cain's sacrifice, the fruit of our lips. We receive 
the gift of blood in in the sense that we receive christ's blood Mm -hmm. and again eucharistically sacramentally because of what he has accomplished on the cross what he is still accomplishing in his intercession for us and that therefore our lives are marked by this radical hospitality the end of violence between us and that that is the sacrifice that is pleasing to god but again that is not to say that Israel has somehow failed. Israel has succeeded. This is right. exactly what Israel was called to do, and it's what we're called to continue. So I, I just want to make sure we're insisting on that distinction because that often it does this. Hebrews can easily be read and has often been read as anti-Semitic or at least anti-Judaistic, mm-hmm. and I think that's a I think that's a misreading. Yeah, absolutely, and so back to the hospitality and not neglecting the hospitality of strangers. I guess this also ties into the fact that the priesthood that Jesus is a part of, Mm -hmm. right, is born out of, it's made possible initially, or at least in part by this hospitality that's offered. Yeah, Mary's hospitality to God, as well as God's hospitality to us. And, and then Jesus himself, of course, is, is known for this, right? He's the Look, look at the way his table fellowship in the gospel of Luke, for example, that's the gospel, um, you know, for, for Sunday, he goes into the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal, mm-hmm. like that kind of hospitality, both given and received by Jesus is what we then embody. And that has to be embodied across all, across all of our practices, right? So he says, Show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are tortured. Let marriage be honorable. Keep your lives free from the love of money. All of that is rooted in who Jesus is to us and what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf and, and for us. That one of, the, one of the ways you can see that is he quotes Deuteronomy. I will never leave you or forsake you. Mm-hmm which resonates, of course, with Matthew 28, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. But if you connect it back to Deuteronomy 31, the I will never leave you means as you're going into the land of promise, as you're coming into the conflict that will mark your life after the exodus, just know I'm with you always in this this new territory. And what that turns out to be is Jesus entering into death and creating through death a new way of life for us so what our our hospitality as followers of jesus and our ethics are rooted in the fact that jesus did not leave us or forsake us but went with us even into death right he he died our death with us Right. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Even death. Right. Exactly. What can anyone do to me? Because the worst you can do is take my life from me, but nothing can, you know, in the language of Paul, nothing can separate us. Not even death Mm -hmm. can separate us from God. And so that that's the heart of the. So when he says the writer says, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. It's because you are because in Christ we are one. Right. What I, I was reading in. Maximus just this week, um, Ambiguum 71, where he's 
talking about the relationship between the saints and how Jesus can say of John the Baptist, this is Elijah, come again. And Maximus makes the point that in Christ, we are all one, that we can and do truly belong to the same life, so that what's true of you is true of me. What's happening to you is happening to me. We're not only mutually implicated and responsible for each other, we are mutually determined by each other. Hmm. So when we're rejoicing with those who rejoice and suffering with those, or weeping with those who, who weep, it's because we are suffering the same fate. We, we are undergoing what they are undergoing. If someone is in prison, we are in prison too. If they're being tortured, we are being tortured too. And in marriage, therefore, you have that full, not just equality, but intimacy of being. We are one flesh, not just husband and wife. All of us who are in Christ are one flesh. And for that reason, we avoid violence of, of any kind, right? And we suffer violence graciously. So, and this is a, I mean, there's a, a staggering Christological vision here, right? That again gets lost if we, if we don't pay attention to what, what's actually on the page. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I, man, I, so I guess, let me ask you then, given, given all of that, right, and immediately after, what can anyone do to me? Mm -hmm. The writer then says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider their, the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's the, what's the relationship there between those two sentences? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is notice what's being insisted upon in relation to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm -hmm. And you, that Christological commitment is what's guiding not only the ethics but the ecclesiology right not only the way the moral life is imagined but also the way our shared communal life as believers is is to be determined and before before i answer your question i want to say this it, it seems to me pretty clear that whoever wrote hebrews knows the gospel of matthew or at least knows something about that tradition because of the connection he makes to Jesus as in opposition to mammon, right? So after all of this, he said about, remember those who are in because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I think, again, the Christological point is that Jesus has gone with us even into the domain of death. And Therefore, we cannot be separated from him. But it, it seems obvious to me that the, the rivalry then is between God and mammon. And that the decision that's kind of forced on us by the call of Jesus is whether or not we turn to him or we continue to trust in the powers that rule our lives apart from the work of the Spirit. And those powers ultimately 
are extensions of mammon's reach. And so keeping our lives free from the love of money is the is another way of talking. It's, it's the negative side of what it means to be devoted to Jesus. And so the, the love of money is a, a way of talking about a refusal to be faithful to Jesus. And it's the love of money being bound by it, not being kept free from the love of money that makes it so that mutual love cannot continue, that we cannot show hospitality to strangers so that we cannot remember those who are in prison so that marriage is defiled by adult, adultery and fornication and so on. And I think the question we need to ask is why? Like, what, what is it about the love of money? And I think it comes back to the story of Cain. It's an attempt to get purchase on something that's not ours to control. It's attempt to handle what is not ours to handle, to, to, to force God's hand, so to speak, to buy our way back into paradise. And that that's what Cain is essentially doing. He's using sacrifice as a kind of currency to buy God's favor. And that's why his sacrifice is rejected. And that every time we try to buy favor with our sacrifices, this is to your point earlier about a sacrifice that coerces God, right? Trying to find a way to get leverage on God so God will do what we want, right? Like that is the heart of faithless sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? And Jesus sets us free from all that. So then a leader in, in this sense is someone who teaches us about Jesus and the way of Jesus, teaches us how to read scripture, teaches us how to read our lives in ways that are determined by Jesus and his teaching and and his work. And we need to remember them, right? We We need to honor them. And the way that we remember them and honor them well is to imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. And remembering through all of that, that they can do that, that they can live in these ways because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's drawing attention to the, remember, we're, we're just paragraphs removed from the Hebrews 11, the description of all these men and women of faith. So I think he's, re- he's referring not only to the leaders in our communities, but to all of the saints, all of those people, the great cloud of witnesses who are gathered around us and look at the outcome of their way of life. So what was the outcome of their way of life? What came out of their life? What came out of their life was this devotion to God no matter what happens. Right? Like that they, they all died in confidence, right? That their, their death was not the end, right? That there is a city. They died in hopes of this city built by God. Mm-hmm. And this, the effect of that is to orient us as a community beyond the horizon of our accomplishments, beyond success and failure, beyond all historical processes to the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's the faith we have to imitate. 
the, the outcome of their life is not the success of their ministry or their prosperity or the privilege that they win for themselves or the, the sufferings that they have to undergo, the failure that, that they suffer. The outcome of their way of life is this tenacious holding to Jesus in spite of everything. However their lives end, I mean, go back and look at Hebrews 11. However those lives end, whether they're sawn asunder or they receive their children back again, the outcome of their way of life is this clinging to Jesus, this insistence upon the hope mm -hmm. that God does not disappoint, that God does not let us be put to shame. And as long as we're holding to that, then we are honoring our leaders rightly right we're we're remembering them rightly and i think well i don't know that might be too much of a left turn but i think it might be worth talking a little bit about why so much leadership talk in our circles is so is so problematic but I, yeah i would i would appreciate that because i avoid it i mean like the plague right because I was in that and in those circles, like so many of us were, where it's like leadership was, yeah. um, I mean, it was discipleship. I mean, it was, you know what I mean? It was, it was synonymous. And that's kind of what it all became about, all the conferences and books I read, you know, all that stuff. And I just have such a distaste for it. So when I, I mean, two things. One is so when I hear the kind of leadership talk, there's kind of bells go off. But also, I guess a little bit to um, the honor, the language of honor. Yeah, say um, more about that. Say more about what you mean there. Well, I, I think because it was used in such um, maybe cheap ways, but just lots of talk about honor and honoring our leaders. And I, I guess I always, it be, I became maybe just kind of cynical about it because it felt like um, it felt like a blindness to what was what was actually going on, like calling for honor for people and in situations where I felt a sense of I don't know that honor is is due here. I mean, I don't I don't feel that something good has come from you know from their leadership or mm -hmm. ultimately or you know or from this direction, but we're just kind of giving honor because. We have to. And also, I think there was often a call for honor in situations that felt, uh, and this wouldn't have been me, but what I was seeing, uh, situations for people who I felt were being kind of uh, abused in one way or another. Or, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm thinking especially about, um, you know, women in the denomination, uh, uh, you know, which I serve, right, kind of constantly calling for them to give honor, but even as they were kind of being put down or set aside, mm -hmm. um, but still, you know, give honor to your, you know, to your leaders, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, so, so, so much here. And I think it, it's hard to start anywhere without losing a lot of people because we are coming to this conversation already, whoever we are, we're coming to this conversation already marked by our experience of honor and dishonor. And 
most of us, at least, if not all of us, on both sides of that dynamic, right? We've, we know what it is to be in a position that should be honored, but is not. And we know what it's like to be in a position of trying to honor people who are demanding something that is dishonorable from us, you know, or at least we have some sense of it. But I think one, one way in might be to say that there, there are, there are no kind of simplistic responses to this right so think think about jesus right he's quite clear the let no one call you father let no one call you father and he's insistent right that you not take the seat of honor in the gospel text for the day he says outright like you you do not go and sit down right in the place of honor, which is a parable. And I want to come back to that eventually, but still, I mean, I think Jesus lives with and practices a kind of deference and humility that is vital, like right at the heart of who he reveals God to be. And yet there's this moment, right? When Jesus, the woman is washing Jesus' feet or anointing Jesus' feet. And Judas and at least some others in the room are angry that that's not being used to feed the poor or right. to clothe the poor. And there is, a, I think, a, something we have to own and that some of us are reacting against honoring our leaders not because we see the truth, but because there's that in us that recoils against others receiving honor we feel we deserve. Mm. Right? I think some of what's happening there with Judas is that he is trusting. He is caught up in the love of money. He is caught up in Canaanitic sacrifice. Mm. And so when he sees this woman making a sacrifice on Jesus' behalf, he resents it. Right? So there's we have to be very careful here that we don't get on our high horse about criticizing honor cultures when really what we're saying is, dang it, I deserve that kind of honor. Why is no one treating me that way? Right. And even if we would never formulate it in those words, we would never say it to ourselves that explicitly. That's what our hearts are saying, right? Mm. So I think Jesus did receive honor. And he showed honor. And there is a place, I mean, there's a reason that in, in the commandments, we're directed to honor our fathers and mothers. And we're not, we're not reading that passage right now, but later in Hebrews, we're told to obey our leaders, not just right. to remember them, but to obey them. <laughs> right. And I do think there's a kind of irony here in that the only way to actually move toward justice and free ourselves from oppression, manipulation, and so on, is not by finding ourselves in leadership roles and handling it differently. Like, that's the way we imagine it, right? I'm going to change the culture once I'm in power, right? Once I have a position of honor, then I will let people relate to me in a way that is appropriate. But it actually starts where we are right here and right now. Like I, I have to know both how to give and receive honor 
in my roles as they stand today and trust that God is at work in that and accept the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of the people that are serving me and that I'm serving and yet recognize the need for honoring and and being honored like there there's a i'm thinking about this for for example as a parent like i can't be driven by ego i can't how to intimidate my children or instill in them some sense of i'm your dad therefore you have to do whatever i say and yet they do need some sense in which i'm their father right and if they don't have a kind of deference for me as their father, it's actually bad for them. I'm not just anyone else in their life. Mm-hmm. I'm not just some random adult who happens to be older than them. I am their father. And I have to be able to live in that without pretension, without arrogance. I have to recognize I am their father. I'm not anyone else's dad. I'm their dad. And they have to defer to that, and I have to accept it. And so insofar as honor is recognizing that reality, it is good. Right? Where, it, where it goes wrong is when we try to create those kinds of connections falsely, right? So if in some of our circles, right, we, we talk about being spiritual fathers when we don't actually have that relationship. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And just because you tithe to me or just because I claim to be your apostle doesn't mean that I actually have that authority in your life truly from God. It's not actually the way in which your life has been shaped. I mean, this is part of what I think Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Like you have many instructors, but you do not have many fathers. I'm the one who actually brought this community about. If I hadn't come when I came and preached the gospel as I did to you you would not be a church now. You would not be a gathering in Christ if it were not for me and the message I brought to you. I'm your father in the faith. I brought you forth like a mother. I nursed you. And that, I think, maybe I'm going on too long here and the point may be obvious, but I think the fact of the matter is there are people in our lives that have determined who we are and those people deserve honor. Mm -hmm precisely because of that not because they're perfect in every other way but my parents brought me into being my parents cared for me and nurtured me into adulthood my parents have continued to show up and show support to me and whatever their failures may be and whatever their shortcomings as persons may be they deserve honor and will always deserve honor from me because of who they are in my life right and the same is true of teachers and pastors that i've had the same is true you know, of my wife, of course, and friends. Like there are people who have made me who I am. Those people deserve honor and well, honor me. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I just, I'm, I can't help but think like, what does that, what does that look like? Or is that, is that requirement of honor still there for people who have made us what we are, but who also abused us? Yes, the requirement is still there. I mean, I think depending on what the abuse is, and this is, you know, we're, we're well into the weeds here. 
I mean, certainly there are kinds of abuse that break that relationship right in terms of you can no longer wisely continue in conversation with them or ongoing communion and that's that's right that's what i'm thinking about and 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 absolutely those things do happen which are they're all the more tragic because they're, they're breaking something vital right it's not you know, having a falling out with one of my teachers is nothing like having that kind of rupture between me and my parents. Right. Right. So I, I don't want to downplay that that does happen and that there are times in which we, we simply have to say, I cannot show honor to you by putting myself back into that position to be abused again. So definitely. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that happens now. I think we have to draw a distinction between that kind of abuse and simply not being treated the way we want to be treated. Like there's a difference between, and I would even say there's a difference between not being handled the way I want to be handled, being mistreated and being abused. So I would think abuse the way that I'm using the term means that relationship is over. Like I get from that point on, I'm going to determine what the boundaries are and I'm not going to put myself or my children or my friends or my neighbors in a position to be abused further. Certainly. Right. And that's true with relation to parents. That's true in relation to pastors. Right. So definitely, but there are people who mistreat me in ways that don't end the relationship and shouldn't end the relationship. Mm -hmm. And then I want to make that clear, but then there are also people who don't do what I wish they would do, but that's not mistreatment. And that is what I have to learn to swallow. I have to know the difference, right? I I do not mean to take abuse. No one should take abuse ever. And I do not mean that all mistreatment is the same. Mistreatment needs to be named as such. But I need to learn, and I think at the heart of wisdom and maturity is the ability to discern, okay, I don't like this, but it's not mistreatment of me, and it's certainly not abuse. And and if I can't tell that difference, then I need help. I need advisors in my life to help me to to sort out that difference. And of course, I, I know that that's easier said than done, but I do think those distinctions matter, and we need to we need to pray into them and seek wise counsel about which is which. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry to take you into those weeds there. I, I did, did you want to say anything about specifically about leadership? Well, I mean, just, I mean, in terms of Hebrews, how it has to do with the way that we to be a leader is to bring the word of God to bear in people's lives in ways that are life-giving for them. Leadership is not about technique or gathering a crowd or exerting influence in people's lives in some general abstract sense. It's a, it's a very particular thing. Like leaders here are people who lead us to Jesus and show us how to live the way of life Jesus has called us to live. They show us how to live a life of gift beyond sacrifice. And I, 
I think we've, I don't want to say wasted, but man, it sure feels like we've wasted a lot of time talking about leadership in ways that don't have anything to do with that. Right. With the way of Jesus. And I think that's probably worth pointing out. Yeah. That kind of leadership that is just almost entirely about technique. Yeah. I mean, if it's not entirely, it's almost entirely. Yeah. Yeah. The last lines of this text in Hebrews through him, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. So the sacrifice of praise is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. And then next line, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Yep. Is this saying something different, saying the same thing in a different way? Yeah. I mean, essentially the Eucharist is the whole of our lives. Right. So w- what happens at the table is we offer gifts to God, bread and wine, mm-hmm. and he then offers back to us as the body and blood of his son. And then we embody that as a community and personally, communally and personally in the whole world. So that the, the doing good is receiving and giving of gift. This, I mean, this is the emphasis all the way through giving and receiving. We are we are mutually determined. Our lives are so bound up in one another that what happens to you is happening to me, whether I realize it or not. And whatever good comes to you is a good that's coming to me, however slowly, however strangely. And any bad you suffer, abuse or mistreatment, is something I'm suffering. And in in Christ, we are one flesh. And we, we have to learn to live from that conviction with those who are in prison and those who are tortured, with those with whom we share a bed, those who are our parents in them and those who are our children, our friends and neighbors and so on. The living of that kind of sacrifice then becomes the whole of our life. Our our entire lives become Eucharistized. We, the, the table of the Lord, the boundary of the table continues to widen and widen and widen Mm -hmm. right more and more seats set at the table which i think if i can bring that back to the the parable in the gospel text this week i mean jesus is not simply offering advice about how to handle yourselves in public i mean this is not an etiquette lesson from jesus when he says when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet do not sit down at the place of honor He's not, again, offering tips about how to succeed in Palestinian society, right? Yeah. He's talking specifically about how to live this kingdom. Like when when you're brought in by the spirit, you have to live with that humility. In relation to the work of God, in relation to the wisdom of God, like you, you have to learn to give this, to give place to other people, right? That, and that's, which is precisely what he does, right? I mean, he gives us his place in the father. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. So to, what he's telling us here is, again, not advice for what to do when we're invited to the, the house of a wealthy, powerful person. He's telling us how to live our lives day to day in the spirit, make place for other people, create room for them 
in God. Right? Mm. Make space in God for them so that you can move them toward God. So that you, you can then give those persons your place. And you in that way will be moved up, right? You because you'll you'll be following Christ in that in that act. Right. Which is what I mean, what's so amazing, right? About part of what's so amazing about the way this kingdom works, right? In the same way that it's not as though Christ is displaced That's right. by him giving us our his place. It's just that more and more and more room is made. I mean, I'm thinking about some of the things you said about like, you know, your read of things like the first and the last, right? That it's, it's, it's not, I mean, say, just say that for a minute because I don't want to, I don't want to botch it there. No, no, I think you, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, that the, Jesus is not simply taking us from the back of the line and putting us at the front and those who are at the at the front, putting them at the back. He's undoing our systems of measurement. Right. Right. He's essentially saying you, you think in terms of first and last, but I am the first and the last, which means that your measurement, anything other than me is a false measurement. Mm -hmm. Right. And when I say the first will be last and the last first, well, if I am the first and the last, that means all of you are one in the end. Right. So if we hear this word as a word of bad news, right, give up your place and or good news for us and bad news for others. Right. Right. Yeah. Either way, we're hearing it like Cain or we're hearing it like Abel. We're not hearing it in Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that sense, Cain is first and Abel is last, but in Christ, they're one. And so mutual love is possible. Mm-hmm. And both Cain and Abel and the sacrifices they offer continue to think in terms of first and last as in rivalry, as irreconcilable. Either if someone else is first, I cannot be. Right? If someone else is in the place of honor, that means I'm at best in the second place. I'm, I'm down from the place they have. place and that's the place jesus has taken outside the camp in this in the heart of death that place he has made home for us that's where the city of god is being built and and therefore first and last are one in him cain and abel are reconciled in him gift overcomes both sacrifices and does what neither sacrifice could ever do. And I think that's that's some of what Jesus is insisting on at the end of this parable when he says, give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So that's a way of saying what God is doing cannot be done within the workings of the world as we know it. Like what God is accomplishing, the blessing God is bringing about cannot be brought about through any cause and effect. Whether that's the cause of Cain or the cause of Abel. Mm-hmm. It just cannot be brought about that way. But it, it can be created, and that's what God is doing. God is, is the creator, not the causer. And 
Cain and Abel are locked into cause effects or cause and effect relationships that Jesus frees us from. And the faithful leader is the one who helps us find that way of living, who shows us. And here I'm talking, yes, pastors and yes, parents, but also this is, this is what the saints do. This is what the prophets do. They show us how to find our way into that life the life that is gift and not merely sacrifice that is life-giving even in the heart of death mm-hmm. that is blessed because it does not fit in the machinations of the world systems right it, it is not a cause effect life yeah I love that. And if, I mean, at the real, I know we got to stop, but to come back to those questions about abuse, mistreatment, and disagreement, I don't know how to label that third category, but, you know, not being treated the way that I want to be or would prefer to be treated. Mm -hmm. I think recognizing the creativity of God in all of those cases. So if I have been abused, and I have been, I mean, I have been, that cause has affected things in my life. I mean, I, I am, have been broken by that abuse in certain ways, but God's creativity is deeper than that effect. Mm-hmm. And God did not use that cause to bring about effects in me, good or bad. God's creativity is at work against both the effects and the cause. And the same is true of mistreatment. And the same is true of treatment that is not what I prefer. God's creative faithfulness to me remains no matter what anyone does or doesn't do to me. And again, good leadership is drawing us into that confidence in the Lord. That bad leadership to put it bluntly will make you think that the effects you want in your life depend upon the causes I can bring about. You need right. me because you want certain effects I can cause, or mm-hmm. I can show you how to cause, mm-hmm. but that's Cain. Like that's not the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Good leadership is how do I, no matter what the causes and effects are in your life, how do I help you find the creativity and the creative faithfulness of God that's already, already, always at work? Good leadership does. It shows that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same, whether you're being treated well or poorly, right? No matter what you're facing, again, go back and look at the lives of the saints in Hebrews 11, no matter what the events in your life are, the outcome is Jesus is faithful. And how do I, as a leader, how do I help people find the faithfulness of God in the midst of their experiences? How do I help people trust in Jesus' experience of God rather than their own interpretation of what's happening to them? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't know. I want to make sure no one hears me downplaying the trauma that comes in abuse. But I want to, without downplaying it at all, 
insist on our confidence in the always greater faithfulness of God and the creativity of God to counteract that. Well, if I may, then let me ask a clarifying question. Recognizing those realities, what may be necessary, especially in the in light of abuse, it's hard for me to hold that with the statement that honor is still required. I, I don't know what I don't know what honor means if the if the complete sundering of a relationship is is necessary, and and we know it often or can be. Well, the burden isn't on the person who's abused. The burden is on the abuser. Mm -hmm. They've dishonored someone who was in their care mm -hmm. and therefore they've abdicated that responsibility and have lost have forfeited the the relationship in which that honor could be shared okay that's helpful all right mm -hmm. what i do not want to suggest i don't want anybody to hear me suggesting is that if you've been abused it's still on you to find a way to honor that person right right that's not what i'm saying okay good yeah now, if you've been merely mistreated or if you just don't, you'd prefer to do it another way, that's a different question. But where there is, where there is abuse, yes, that falls on the abuser. And the tragedy of that is something they have to answer for first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I am just so struck before that clarification. I mean, because part of what I hear you saying is that to the creativity of God. It, it is, it is to, in some ways, refuse to be called father, right? But that's that, that line in scripture is not some kind of, uh, you know, prophetic polemic against like <laughs> the priesthood or something, no, right. right? It's a, it's a, don't be called don't allow yourself to be called someone's origin. Exactly. Don't like, allow yourself to be called someone's uh, primary narratival cause, right? Absolutely. That's not who you are. You're not their source. You're not their guide. You're not their goal. Right. right? Like you're, you're not the beginning and end for them. Jesus is. You're not first and last. Jesus is. Mm -hmm. And I think the real harm done between us is, is done when we assume, when we do things that are not ours to do, and we fail to do things that, out, that are ours to do, right? So, I mean, we, not, not without reason, we're, we're hyper-focused right now on abuse, not you and I, I mean, our culture at large. Mm -hmm. And again, not without reason, but the fact is most of the damage we suffer in life cannot rightly be called abuse. It's, it's mistreatment. Yeah. And there, again, there are abuses that mm -hmm. have disastrous effect. There, there's trauma that we, we suffer. But most of our woundedness and brokenness just comes from mistreatment, comes from people assuming places in our lives that we're not theirs to assume, and us assuming places in other people's lives that we're not ours to assume. And even more, us refusing to fulfill what was ours to do, doing what, what we should have done, right? And I, th I think you know, in, in our talk about abuse, it's important that we remember that, that just because I'm not an abuser doesn't mean that I'm not harming people. And just because I'm not actively harming people does not mean my failure to speak up when it's time to speak up or my failure to be present 
fully present when it's time to be present, my failure to withdraw when it's time for me to leave and so on, like that those failures don't have consequences. They do. They matter immensely. And as I say often, they can't keep God from being God, but they do determine how God has to be God for the people around us. Mm-hmm. I think we, we cannot expect God. We, it, it's, a, it's magical thinking to expect God to do what is ours to do. Like God is at work in what we're doing. God is not going to do what is ours to do instead of us. God is going to do what is ours to do in our doing it. Mm-hmm. We work the works of God by doing those things. And we, many of us are, are eaten up with magical thinking. And when, when you think magically, you shirk responsibility. And when you shirk responsibility, you do and suffer incredible damage. Even if you wouldn't call any of that abuse, it's still damage. Yeah. And it lessens the vitality with which you live. It, it pales your humanity. And the consequences of that are enormous, that the creativity of God remains the creativity of God, but the consequences are enormous. So I, I don't want to, to downplay that either. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. You want to have a, a, a last word then on any of these texts before we get going? Yeah, I, I, I'll say one thing more. And that is, so like in, in Proverbs, we get, and, and you can also, there's an alternative reading in Sirach 10, which talks about how we are to be present in the present of, how we are to be present in the presence of the powerful. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, let, let me read the Sirach portion, which I know a lot of us probably don't normally read, but then <laughs> I'll read that and the Proverbs passage and, and you'll see why. The beginning of human pride is to forsake the Lord. The heart has withdrawn from its maker. From the beginning of pride is sin, for the beginning of pride is sin, and the one who clings to it pours out abominations. Therefore, the Lord brings upon them unheard of calamities and destroys them completely. The Lord overthrows the thrones of rulers and enthrones the lowly in their place. Remember that enthrones the lowly in their place. The Lord plucks up the roots of the nations and plants the humble in their place. The Lord lays waste the lands of the nations and destroys them to the foundations of the earth. He removes some of them and destroys them and erases the memory of them from the earth. Pride was not created for human beings or violent anger for those born of women. So I think you can hear the Cain and Abel story, pride and violent anger. But what's what I want to impress, even though I don't want to take a lot of time to do it, is that Jesus is the lowly one enthroned in the place of the rulers. The Lord overthrows the thrones and enthrones, enthrones the lowly in their place. Jesus is the lowly enthroned in the place of the rulers. And that's double-sided. He's enthroned in their place in the sense that he's Lord and they're not. But it alters what it means to be a ruler. He's not simply given their authority. He's asserted as the one who's truly authoritative over against their authority. Mm -hmm. So when Proverbs says, 
Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. We have to hear that the king in whose presence we find ourselves is the lowly one. I am among you as one who serves, that when we are present to the Lord, we are present to the servant of all, the one who is Lord precisely as the servant of all. And that posturing ourselves in relation to God is always going to be wrong if we think we're posturing ourselves in relation to someone more powerful than us who wants us to know our place. Superior, more privileged, more powerful. God is not above me on the chain of being. God is the lowly one, enthroned in the place of those who are above me. Mm -hmm. And if I don't come to him with that awareness, I haven't yet heard the God. I'm not yet awakened to what his spirit in me is, is saying. Right. And if we don't come with that awareness, we'll, I think, just keep perpetuating. Absolutely. We'll keep the, offering Cain's or Abel's sacrifice, right? right? The best we can do is offer Abel's sacrifice. And the worst we'll do is offer Cain's. And most right. of us, of course, most of the time are both Cain and Abel. We're Cain in the same moment that we're able, mm -hmm. acting in one way that is faithful and in other ways that are faithless. So I, I'll leave it with this. The come up here is, is a come up onto the cross. Mm -hmm. That's the call. Come up here is not a position of privilege, a, pos a position of superiority and control, but come into the very heart of death mm. with this God who is open to all. Come up on the cross. That's how we have to hear it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, thanks. Absolutely. I know. Um, hopefully. I know we got into some difficult stuff today, and, and I want to make sure that the people hear what we're saying prayerfully. You know, if, if you're if you're hearing this and you're not sure about what has happened in your life, what is happening, or what you're doing. You know, please get good counsel. Please pray. Seek out people who know what they're talking about. Because I, I don't want anything I'm saying or anything we've suggested here to cover over any kind of abuse. But I, I do want people to hear that they need to discern that. That just because it's difficult doesn't mean it it's traumatic yeah i think we 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 need help discerning that yeah and any good leader wants that you know like i yeah i mean i i, I can keep making qualifications hopefully the spirit of what we're saying is clear yeah thanks for saying yep. that all right man well i hope you have a great trip Give my love to Father Kenneth if you see him. Yeah, I will. I will. And pray for me because this is my oldest going away. So our lives and her life are about to change. Yeah. 
for Will. We're good, I think. I'm not grieving it, but yeah. All right, let's stop. Thanks, we'll man. Do. I appreciate your help. See you, man.